Hey, welcome back to this week's episode of Trust and Believe. This week's listener highlight review comes from Brooke Craven. Brooke said, Sean, host of the Trust and Believe podcast, highlights all aspects of health, fitness, and more in this can't-miss podcast. The hosts and expert guests offer insightful advice and information that is helpful to anyone that listens. Thanks for the awesome review, Brooke. If you would like to be featured next week, just leave a review anywhere you are streaming. We can't wait to hear from you. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Trust and Believe. I'm your host, Sean T. First and foremost, I want to say thank you so much for listening to Trust and Believe. I really appreciate it. Your reviews have been so amazing and so great. And for those of you who answered the question on my Instagram stories about what you want to hear and what you want me to talk about in the future, thank you for leaving those suggestions. They really help me give you more of what you want. But today, we have such a really interesting and cool guest. His name is Max Lugavere. He's New York Times bestselling author of Genius Foods and The Genius Life. He's the host of The Genius Life podcast. And I have to tell you, he is super, just a really calm, thoughtful, and great human. A really great human being. He is going to give you a lot of insight about food, but more importantly, I think his drive and motivation to carry on just his family legacy is really important, and you'll understand what I'm talking about as we get deeper into the conversation. So sit back, relax, and get ready to trust and believe. Somebody say This is Sean T, and it's time to trust and believe. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. What's up, Max? How you doing? Dude, so Sam, who is, he started as my assistant a couple years ago and has moved up in the company and is doing a lot of stuff for us outside of just assistant work, but he always brings me amazing people and he always finds really quality, just like good people. So we were, we were having a call, a team call. He was like, oh my gosh, Sean, you and Max need to link up. Like he would be, because, you know, to be quite honest, I, I, I never heard of you before. And I was like so mad at myself for not knowing somebody that was so dope. Um, so anyway, thank you so much for taking the time. You are literally in, I would say probably like two, two and a half weeks or since whenever uh, Sam has, has has told you about told me about you or told us about you dude you are so inspiring and I what I love about my life is that I really try to stay a student and become a student every single day and just you know seeing some of your posts and you know just the energy you put behind what you do and what you say and what you write is just so empowering and inspiring and my first question for you is where does that inner grit that inner i would say self-confidence and self-assurance come from oh man well first of all gotta repay the compliment you know i've heard so much about you and uh you know in this 
industry, I guess you can call it, like you can count on two hands, maybe the, uh, you know, the, the good ones, like the high quality people who are putting out solid information out into the ecosystem. And, um, and you're among them, you know, you've been doing this for a while. And I'm just, you know, honored to hear that. And, you know, my thanks go to Sam on your team for bringing, yeah. me, <laughs> bringing me to the table. Um, I got into this. Uh, and, you know, People come to health and fitness for, for any number of reasons, but I got interested in this, um, not because I struggled with any major health problems, uh, but it was my mother who um, was, is uh, the most important person in my life and who always will be the most impor- important person in my life. And uh, she got sick at a very young age, and I was in my late 20s when my mom started to display the earliest symptoms of what would ultimately be diagnosed as a form of dementia. So a lot of people are familiar with um, the most common form of dementia, which is Alzheimer's disease. But dementia is this category of conditions that um, usually, but not always, affects older people. And it's, uh, they're usually, um, they fall under the category of what are called neurocognitive disorders. So they basically affect how your brain works. And as a younger person, I mean, at the time when I was... It's about 27, 28. I thought about dementia the way I think many millennials think about dementia. It's an old person's disease. It's something that's in your genes. Or it's, uh, you know, maybe an inevitable aspect of aging is how most people consider it. But when my mom, at such a young age, she was about 58, started to, um, you know, it almost seemed as if she had had a brain transplant with somebody 20, 30 years her senior. Uh, it was really um, upsetting to witness. And then finally, it was at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, where she was diagnosed for the first time with that neurodegenerative condition. And she was prescribed drugs for both uh, Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. And that was like a bomb. You know, that was like the Hiroshima bomb going off in my world uh, when she was diagnosed with that, with, with that type of condition. Um, and at that point I was in between jobs. I had worked previously as a, as an investigative journalist for a, a youth oriented news and information TV network as a journalist. But after the, after my mom, um, was received this diagnosis, I basically couldn't think about anything other than nutrition and science and, and ultimately digging into the literature, what's called the primary literature, you know, our most, you know, respected peer reviewed medical research to try to discover what it was about my mom's diet and lifestyle that might have pulled the trigger on her having developed that condition, mm. both to see, just to understand why, to get a sense of, of you know, um, understanding about why my mom seemed to be so unlucky. Was it luck or was it something in her environment that, that pulled the trigger? And then in tandem with that, what might be available to her in terms of a, a, a dietary Uh, and lifestyle intervention? Were there any foods that she might eat or, you know, activities that she might perform that might help and improve her brain function? Um, And then sort of lastly, it was what could be done to prevent this from happening to myself. Mm. One of the most shocking discoveries that I made is that dementia often begins in the brain decades before the first symptom, 30 to 40 years before the first symptom. So if you subtract 30 from my mom's age at the time, uh, you get me. And so I realized very, very, very soon after that this is something that millennials need to be talking about. Nobody's talking about it. Doctors are talking about it. You know, I'm not the only person talking about this topic, but the only reason why I became interested in it is because my mom was sick. And so I realized that if I was going to get young people to talk about this and to start living in a way that was going to, you know, be to the benefit of their brain health, of their cognitive health, then I need to, I needed to stand up and do it myself. Um, cause I had a story, I was relatable. And so I really made it my mission to be rigorous in my research, to reach out to anybody who can provide clues in this sort of scavenger hunt for truth, um, to always be willing to challenge my, my assumptions, um, and my beliefs, but ultimately to be a teacher, to help people. Um, and so my passion really is helping people of all ages understand how to best optimize their brain health and their brain function and their mood, you know, which is a function of, of, of brain health. Uh, but then under that, you know, you have heart health, you have fitness, you have all those, all these different like aspects of wellness that fall under the purview of brain health. And so really it's, you know, it's everything. I'm just interested in everything from sleep to environmental you know, toxin exposure to exercise physiology. I'm, I'm really interested in it all because it all matters. Was there, in your research, was there anything that you found where 
you personally could get a brain scan or, or of sorts early enough on to see if you even had the gene or, you know, if there was, you know, something in a pipeline? Yeah, uh, really good question. So I have done a full genetic workup um, and I do carry a copy of the most common genetic risk factor associated with Alzheimer's disease and neurodegeneration more broadly. Uh, but one in four people, so here's the thing, one in four people listening to this podcast carry the same gene mm. as I do, which increases your risk anywhere between uh, two and 14 fold for developing Alzheimer's disease. But this is not a deterministic gene. So it's not... You know, when they say genes aren't destiny, this is the perfect example of that. So just because I have this gene does not in any way mean that I'm going to develop what my mom developed or some other form of dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, for example. But the flip side of that is that you might not carry that gene and you could still potentially develop Alzheimer's disease. So it's very confusing. There is also what's called polygenic risk. So I might have some yet to be discovered gene deep within my genome that is actually negating uh, whatever, you know, negative activity, uh, the more well-defined Alzheimer's risk gene is having um, on my health. So, you know, trying to steer your life in accordance with your genes, we're just at the very tip of the iceberg in terms of really understanding how best to do that. And so that's why the recommendations that I make, um, I believe, are going to do the most good for the most people. Because yeah. nutrigenomics, which is sort of what I'm talking about, is, you know, we're just barely scratching the surface now. Um, I've also been able to have uh, my brain scanned um, at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, which is one of the primary, one of the major academic medical institutions that's doing a lot of this research to look to see if I had any amyloid beta buildup in my brain, which is the plaque associated with, um, with Alzheimer's disease. And thankfully I was uh, in the clear as yeah. far as that goes. Um, but that's pretty much it. You know, I think blood work can be important, but also just getting a, a subjective sense of how you feel is also pretty valuable. Yeah, because I was going to say, before we get into um, nutrition, because I feel like you're about to really enlighten a lot of people with the questions I have. Um, when people hear about brain health and dementia and Alzheimer's, I think, like you said, while one in four people listening to this podcast uh, could somehow be subjected to it or have a gene of some sort. Uh, one of the other things is they, they probably, I would say 90% of us know someone who has suffered from dementia at an older age, you know? And so do you, or in your research, um, in your studies, have you found, uh, have you heard or found some warning signs of early onset dementia that people could be kind of looking out for if they feel like, you know, oh my gosh, like that's something interesting because you say, like you said, and I say in weight loss, it's, we have to really listen to how we feel. You know, a lot of people go after, you know, I want to lose weight and they think that that number is going to get them that, that aha moment or that amazing feeling when really you have to actually focus on how you feel and that's going to build your confidence more than anything else. Do you have any um, risk factors for us or just, you know, symptoms yeah. that we should look for? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think we're, we're all subject to the occasional mental foible, you know, like meaning like memory tends to falter as we get older. Um, and you <laughs> I know, know I'm, that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, same, and I'm sharper one day, you know, from one day to the, to the next, my, you know, my cognitive abilities, um, you know, there's, there's some degree of inconsistency, I think, uh, that is, that falls within the realm of normal. But what they say is if you forget where your car keys are occasionally, that's normal. If you forget what your car keys are for, um, that's when you should, you know, go see a, a neurologist. There are also certain biomarkers that you can look at that are associated with heightened risk for developing, um, cognitive decline that you can look at in, in your blood, which you can go and get, um, tested from a doctor. I think vitamin D is one of the, one of the major ones. You want to make sure that your vitamin D levels are within a healthy range. Also, I mean, depression, if you, if you're chronically depressed, depression doesn't necessarily cause dementia, but it is a risk factor. Mm. Um, so making sure that, that you're, uh, also waist size, you know, staying fit, staying fit is major. I mean, exercise is medicine for the brain. Mm. And there have been correlational studies that have found that as your waist uh, expands, your brain actually shrinks. So there's this inverse correlation between waist size and brain volume. 
Um, we know that leg strength and just, you know, more generally bodily strength is associated with better brain health. So making sure that you're fit and strong. I mean, these are all things that, um, that are heavily related to, to brain health. Um, and, you know, uh, even though there are correlation, we, we can see more mechanistically that when we exercise, we, you know, we reduce inflammation, we increase what's, what's called insulin sensitivity, you know, the sensitivity of our cells to the hormone insulin, which helps with energy metabolism and fat, uh, utilization. Um, so there's so many, so many things, uh, levels of inflammation we could look at. We could look at lipids. We could look at glucose tolerance. Um, so there's like, there's a number of, of things, but just generally speaking, if you're metabolically healthy, that's the holy grail of, mm. uh, of, of, you know, optimal brain health as far as we know. So making sure that you're, that you're metabolically healthy and that might, you know, a lot of people listening, I'm sure are going to say, well, I'm metabolically healthy. I'm young. You know, I don't have any, any medical diagnosis. I'm, I'm, I don't have a disease. But it's important to remember that the absence of d- disease doesn't necessarily mean the presence of health. Mm. Today, statistically, only about 12% of Americans have good metabolic health um, when looking under the hood. So making sure that you're doing everything you can to eat a healthy diet, um, and we can sort of get more granular and talk about what that looks like. Staying fit, getting to the gym you know, as, as often as you can, um, make sure that you're you know, just generally staying active, sleeping well, finding a way to uh, deal with stress. I know we live in stressful times, but stress is a major um, killer. Getting out into nature, getting the sun on your skin. Um, these are all really important parts of the equation. You know, in, in, in health and fitness and also in medicine, everybody likes to take this like reductionist approach, you know, like it's going to be one blueberry that you eat once a week that's going to shield your brain. But really, it's, it's a pie, and that's what my new book, The Genius Life, is really all about. It's about like looking at the pie and doing what you can, where you can, to, to tweak and, and set healthy habits for yourself that are going to pay big dividends. Um, because it really is about the full picture. So you were talking about optimal health, mental health, brain health, optimal health, fitness, nutrition. And for years, one of my rules when people would come to me about nutrition is and this was like just something I try to keep so simple for people. I would say if it doesn't expire within two weeks, you should probably stay like stick away from things that don't expire within two weeks as much as possible. You know, so people could just think, how can I eat as fresh and as healthy as possible? So my first question for you is, um, how do ultra processed foods lead to addiction? Because at the end of the day, and you know this just as well as I do, and a lot of people know sugar's addicting, and there's a lot of other things that are put in the foods that make us addicted to it. So could you answer that for us and give us some like motivation on how to beat this? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I'll be the first to admit that when you put a, you know, whatever form of ultra processed food in front of me that I happen to enjoy, I'll be the first to admit it's, it's nearly impossible for me to moderate my consumption of those foods because they're so addicting. They're what food scientists call hyper palatable. And usually what they do is they combine uh, sugar, fat, usually wheat, some kind of, some kind of flour and salt. And what that does is it basically sends off the equivalent of the 4th of July's fireworks in your brain, in your brain's reward center. And I just it, ate a donut, so I know exactly what Yeah, you're it's so good. I, I generally have a rule to shop around the perimeter of the supermarket because that's where all those perishable foods, like as you, as you mentioned, tend to be around the perimeter of the supermarket. Very few people realize that supermarkets are generally designed the same. Fresh foods hang out around the perimeter of the supermarket. It's the ultra-processed foods that are found in the aisle of the supermarket. And what ultra-processed foods really are, are foods comprised of pulverized grain powder, um, which take your body no effort at all to digest and assimilate. And what that does is it sends your blood sugar through the roof. Um, and also those foods are loaded with unhealthy additives, usually unhealthy oils. Um, they're very calorie dense and they're not satiating. So that, that combination of hyperpalatability, they're so, they push your brain to a bliss point beyond which self-control is just, it's impossible, and yet they're not satiating. So it makes you eat more and more and more and more. Um, and so, I, you know, that's a major problem. They're also very calorie dense, so it becomes very easy to consume more calories than you're burning every day, which, you know, a calorie surplus, that equals weight gain. Um, and in fact, this was proven recently in a study funded by the National Institutes of Health where they found that people who um, were given unlimited access to ultra-processed foods uh, and told to eat until they were satiated ended up consuming about 500 additional calories a day. 
And yet when they when they did the crossover arm of the study, those people were allowed to eat until they were full, but they were given minimally processed foods. So basically whole foods, like foods with single you know, ingredients or one or two or three ingredients. Um, they ate actually at a calorie deficit naturally. So ask yourself, if you don't want to count calories and you want to feel full and satiated, then avoid those ultra-processed foods. You know, lo and behold, 60% of the calories that we consume today come from ultra-processed foods. But, you know, the goal here is not perfection. It's it's simply to minimize. It's to, like, be able to recognize what ultra-processed foods are and to keep them out of your shopping cart. Because if they're in your shopping cart, they're as good as in your stomach. All of these things that you're talking about, you just told us, which is, which is really great, um, especially in terms of knowing that if you are eating super high processed foods, it is extremely difficult to stop eating because that is one of the, I, I would, and I think you noticed, that's one of the things you hear about the most, which is, oh my gosh, like, you know, I'm still hungry after I eat. I'm still hungry after I eat. And it's probably because the foods and, and the uh, ingredients that you're putting in your body are probably not nutrient enough for you yeah and it it makes it tough the next thing that i want to kind of segue to is you know i hear a lot of people talk about insomnia or they can't sleep at night and i want to help them make the correlation that the way you're eating has a direct reflection on how you're sleeping can you talk about that a little bit Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, how well or how poorly we sleep affects what we choose to eat. And in turn, what we choose to eat uh, or don't choose to eat necessarily affects how we sleep. So it creates this vicious cycle. But I think the um, so I think, you know, cleaning up your diet as best you can and then doing what you can to optimize your sleep. It's going to be win-win across the board. It's going to be the rising tide that lifts all the boats in your harbor. Um, So what we know about how food affects our sleep, and this is sort of a new area of study. You know, we don't yet have all of the answers, but generally by eating a diet that minimizes inflammation in your body, um, that's going to go a long way towards helping boost your sleep. Uh, Diets that are higher in fiber, which we know is very good, you know, for us, for our digestive health and for gut health, um, is going to help boost uh, sleep quality. Omega threes, um, you know, fish oil, um, essential fatty acids, uh, also have been shown to boost um, sleep quality. Um, and also, you know, caffeine. Drinking coffee. Coffee is something that is a it's a bit of a controversial topic. Generally, people who drink coffee seem to be seem to have better health. Um, but some people genetically are slow metabolizers of caffeine uh, and, and, and also dark chocolate, which I think is a, is a health food in many ways, uh, also contains caffeine, which can act like a stimulant. Um, so you really want to be sort of cognizant of your coffee consumption and even your consumption of, of chocolate uh, past about noon. I, I these days won't consume coffee uh, with caffeine in it. Um, after about noon. And I used to be a bit more liberal with that. I would consume coffee up until about 4 p.m. Um, but now, generally, I will only drink coffee with caffeine in the morning. And I'll also kind of be careful about my chocolate consumption. When it comes to sleep, you know, we now know that on just one night of shortened sleep, you're more, you're, inc- you're more inclined to eat junk food the following day to the tune of about 400 additional calories. Wow. Um, yeah. You also become less uh, insulin sensitive, like you actually, you actually become temporarily pre-diabetic the day after a night of really poor sleep to the tune of almost having gained 20 to 30 pounds. Uh, and so that's going to make you reach for more junk foods, um, you know, these ultra-processed foods that we're talking about. Uh, so it's interesting because it's like, well, what comes first in terms of what I have to tend to? You know, is it, is it cleaning up the diet or is it sleep? Well, I think you kind of have to do both at the same time. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself playing a game of tug-of-war, uh, you know, with with either. It's really difficult to make changes to your diet um, if you're not sleeping well. And if you're also eating poorly, you're not going to be able to sleep as well as if you were to clean up your diet. Um, so I really think that you've got to kind of like look at both. And both are equally important. And one of the other questions that I know I get a lot when I do live events and when I'm talking about food and uh, especially when it comes to people not able to manage their 
control, if you will, mm. um, is how much time should you give yourself uh, between your last meal and when you actually lay down to go to sleep? That's a really good question. Um, I, the rule that I said is, ju- is two to three hours. It's a bit arbitrary, but you know, generally we're diurnal creatures. What that means is we're meant to eat during the day. So, uh, you know, I, back when I first started reading the literature on intermittent fasting, when it first started coming out five, six years ago, I was less concerned about the hours in which you picked your feeding window. You know, I would eat, for example, sometimes between noon and 8 p.m., but you know, maybe I would push it and, and start eating food at, at 1 p.m. and, you know, push it until 9 p.m. But now I'm, I think I'm, I've become a little bit more convinced uh, when really doing a deep dive into the literature pertaining to circadian biology that you want to eat, you know, in the day, during the daytime, not too, you know, not too late in the day. Mm-hmm. So now at this point, I'll eat from about 11 o'clock uh, in the morning to about 8 o'clock at night. Um, maybe nine o'clock at night. Sometimes I aim for a 14 to 16 hour fasting window. Um, and I, I also, as important as that is, you know, I think being cognizant of our social obligations, uh, is also important. And if I were to become say too rigorous with my intermittent fasting window, then that might exclude me from certain you know social activities that would be beneficial for me in other ways. It's interesting you say that because, um, I've, I've been intermittent fasting for a little over a year now. And I started uh, at the 12, 12 to 8, kind of like you were saying. Yeah. And it, it was really interesting is now I, I do 11 to 7 because I realized that uh, if I work out early in the morning and I work out fasted, I feel really, really good. Same. And then um, one, of the reasons, one of the other reasons why I asked you about sleep is because when I stopped eating past 7, I put – Uh, my boys down at 7 p.m. or I stop eating when they eat. Uh, I find myself uh, falling asleep easier or and faster. And so, um, you know, and I'm like you, like I'm not like one of these people, like I don't aim for perfection because I believe perfection is temporary and change is constant. Like your body feels different. Your brain acts differently. You experience a different emotional state that day from maybe, you know, work or whatever, a relationship. So, you know, you're kind of, you can be thrown off a little bit. So I'm not super rigorous, but I do like 11 to seven. So I like that you said that um, you also realize that you had to change it up a little bit because um, everybody's body's different. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be, it would be sexier probably to have some kind of like hardcore biohacker regimen that I'm on. And, you know, certainly I do maintain control over what it is that I'm eating. You know, I'm, I'm always very conscious of what I'm putting in my mouth and, you know, I'm making sure that I'm sleeping well and I'm always looking to improve and to tweak. But also, I think it's important to not be dogmatic about it. Mm. You're going to set impossible or unrealistic standards for yourself. It's going to be really easy to not only fall off that, that wagon um, because who, you know, especially today, like, you know, these days, who's able really to adhere to something so rigorous and so strict. And then the other thing that that, that does that, that I think can be problematic is that it promotes black or white thinking. Like if you're not being perfect about everything, then you might as well just, you know, the awe, like effort attitude about things. Right. You might as well just throw in the towel. And that's, that's not smart. You know, that's like not the way that this all works. You know, you can be in amazing health doing 80% of the, of, of these things, right. And, and allowing 20% for, you know, allowing yourself leeway for 20% of your efforts yeah. uh, so that you can be human. Yeah. I, I also believe I have a 85% healthy, 15% fun rule. So it leaves me that leeway to like, just enjoy life too. You know, I mean, I love that. but I believe that when you aim for 85%, I, I believe that most of the time is probably more than that because you're very present in what it is that you're choosing to put in your body or how you're choosing to stay committed to your fitness or your emotional relationships or whatever it is that you want to sustain in terms of optimal health. So uh, while I say 85% healthy, 15% fun, I'm probably more like 92%, but I know I have that, that leeway. 
Hey, what's up, everyone? I know you like to have fun just like I do. And for fun around our house, we drink dry farm wines. We love it simply because, number one, who doesn't love a wine night or something fun to wind down on a weekend or on a Friday? And number two, this wine is amazing because it's all natural, additive-free, it's lab-tested for purity, sugar-free, and it's low alcohol. That, to me, is absolutely amazing. You can go to dryfarmwines.com slash Sean T. Order it and please let me know how you like it because, you know what, I love to raise my glass to a nice ending to a great day. Always trust and believe in the wine, too. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I would love to hear your your take on this, especially in terms of how to help people. So we've all heard for so long, you know, the more protein, the more advantages you have for your body. You know, obviously bodybuilders or weightlifters or people who are in fitness and they want to lose weight. It's like more protein, more protein, less carbs, you know, then, you know, obviously there's the fats in there. Years ago, as you know, we had the Atkins diet and people went crazy just eating any old kind of protein. But, you know, protein has some metabolic advantages. And I would love for you to help people navigate their way through being able to optimize their protein intake without, you know, going too far and being hungry. Because that's the biggest thing. People will, they try to lose weight, but then they'll just eat protein and then they leave. They don't have that, you know, that little area where we say we leave a little leeway for fun or whatever they just start eating a bunch of protein and then they're starving later so how do you maximize the advantages of the protein and its metabolic advantages and still kind of have the other nutrients as well yeah that's a really good question i think i mean the first thing that's important is to know is to be able to recognize what foods are high protein and which aren't so first of all and this is a to me, this seems super intuitive, but this is actually, there's a lot of sort of misunderstanding about what constitutes a high protein food. You know, if you take something like peanut butter, which a lot of people consider to be a a protein containing food. So therefore it's a, you know, maybe that's what I should be eating for my protein. Peanut butter is actually a very high fat food, you know, Mm -hmm. by calorie composition, it has a lot more fat than it does protein. And in terms of its protein, it's not even a very high quality source of protein. Um, So, you know, if you're trying to like satiate your hunger and you're eating peanut butter because you think that that's like a a high protein snack or even almond butter or something like that, um, you're actually doing yourself a major disservice because it can be very easy to overconsume and consume far too many calories uh, by eating peanut butter. But actually peanut uh, protein, when you take a high protein food like um, say beef jerky or I'm actually into this like it's an African – Thing comes from South Africa. It's an African beef jerky sort of derivative called biltong. Mm -hmm. Super, super delicious. Um, No sugar added, uh, you know, something like that or eggs or even like low fat Greek yogurt, which is a great, you know, great protein source. Protein is the most satiating macronutrient. So generally, if you're hungry, eat protein. There's this, it's an idea, it's a, it's a hypothesis actually, it's called the protein leverage hypothesis, that our hunger mechanisms are driven by our requirements for amino acids. And so basically people who underconsume protein tend to consume more carbs and fat, which is essentially energy. And people who consume more protein end up eating less carbs and fat. And protein is actually from a, you mentioned that it has a metabolic advantage, which you're 100% right about. Um, It's got the lowest uh, amount of calories, actually, if you consider the thermic effect that protein has. Um, Carbs have four four calories per gram. Uh, Fat has nine calories per gram. And protein has four calories per gram, but actually about 30% of the protein that you consume is burned off just via digestion alone. So if you actually, if you add that into the equation, protein has three calories per gram. So not only is protein the most satiating, but it has the least calories when you consider its thermic effect. So I think it's a I think it's a fantastic tool for people. 
to you know to reach a healthier weight to eat more protein because not only is that going to help um, nurture your muscle tissue um, it's going to help you maintain your if you're in a calorie deficit it's going to help you better maintain the muscle that you have mm-hmm. and if you're in a calorie surplus it's going to help you grow um, it's going to help you preferentially grow more muscle so I mean it's just an amazing um, macronutrient and at every single meal I'm prioritizing protein for every snack I'm prioritizing protein sometimes I'll uh, eat something you know as a snack that's pure fiber because fiber is also satiating but for a different reason fiber actually expands in your stomach so there's this mechanical stretching of the stomach due to fiber that is also very satiating when you stretch the stomach it turns off the production of a hormone called ghrelin which is sort of the hunger hormone and so mm-hmm. uh, fiber can be very satiating for for that, for that reason but generally w- what I say to people is prioritize protein Um, you know, most people, when they do that, when they just make a switch and try to get more protein in their diet or on their plate, most people are going to see a, a, almost a spontaneous shift in their body composition towards a more positive state. Um, um, so super, super important. Super, super important. Um, it's so interesting you say that because I used to pre quarantine, (laughs) uh, I would travel a lot. I mean, it was, it was one of the, I had a really crazy travel schedule and, uh, you know, being in health and fitness for 20 plus years, it's easy for me to try and make the right decisions or to say, you know what, I'm just going to fast until I get to the city and get to the hotel and find you know, really healthy and really amazing foods. But I also found it very difficult, if I can just be very honest. I mean, there were some times where I'm like, fuck, man, like I haven't eaten anything and I just want to eat something. And then so you get the salad you know, the pre-made salad, but then sometimes, you know, you're like, I need some chips. Like you feel like you need that, that extra carb, if you will, or if there's French fries and it's really fast and you got to hop on the plane and a burger takes 15, 20 minutes to make, you're like, am I going to starve on this four and a half hour flight or am I going to get the French fries? Sometimes I choose the French fries. I like them. (laughs) But uh, anyway, the reason why I say this, because I was going to tell you now during quarantine, you know, my husband, Scott, goes to the store. And so because we try to go to the supermarket less, we had to kind of resort to a lot more of the frozen foods. But um, going to Sprouts and things like that, we found amazing grass-fed burgers and organic this that are frozen now, which I'm really I'm, – I usually wouldn't get it frozen. I would get it fresh, but now that they have it. And so being home, I've been able to start every single meal off with a high-protein pretty much grass fed burger or something that we cooked the night before some fish, you know, protein. And it's been, I mean, it just changes the energy and I find myself craving less carbs in my eating window. So thank you for sharing that. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. We're in quarantine. A lot of people are afraid to go out of the house. Uh, Most of the time during quarantine, we went from the winter to the spring. Most states, uh, especially in the U S and I have a lot of listeners in the UK, they're not necessarily sunbathing. Let's talk about vitamin D and its importance because I just want you to like, like beat us down with some vitamin D information because I just want people to know that they can still go outside and make sure you get the sun even if you're quarantining at home. Yeah, vitamin D is so important. I mean, first of all, our skin makes vitamin D when we're exposed to the sun. It's a hormone. So it affects the entirety of the body. Um, in, in powerful ways. In fact, they've identified about a thousand genes um, in the human genome that are responsive to vitamin D, which that's 5% of the human genome. Um, and so, you know, now we're seeing all this research coming out, you know, correlational studies showing that um, people are at much higher risk for COVID-19 morbidity and mortality when they are deficient in vitamin D. Um, but we also know that vitamin D is associated with better immune health, uh, just generally, like, uh, you know, a stronger immune system, uh, generally speaking. We know that vitamin D is one of the top environmental risk factors for uh, dementia and cognitive decline. We know that vitamin D is important for cardiovascular health, for blood pressure. Uh, there's just all these different, it would be impossible to rattle off all of the different things that vitamin D, you know, having healthy levels of vitamin D is doing in your body. So, you know, I think it's super important to 
to recognize the primary way in which we get vitamin D is by exposing our skin to the sun. But depending on who you are and where you are, how old you are, you know, what your body composition is, you might have different needs in terms of your exposure to the sun. So people with darker complexion need more time in the sun. Um, people with lighter complexion need less time in the sun. They're also more pr prone to burning, you know, so burning in the sun is not, is not smart. You don't want to, uh, allow yourself to burn. People who are older, um, are less e efficient at, uh, converting the vitamin D that we create in our skin to its active hormone form in the body than younger people. So if you're young, you need less time in the sun than if you're older, if you're overweight, Vitamin D, like the other fat-soluble vitamins, A, E, and K, can get sequestered by your fat tissue. So if you're overweight, you need to spend more time in the sun. Now, the other thing is that uh, when our skin creates you know, vitamin D, before it gets converted by the liver and the kidneys into its active hormone form, the enzymes that do that uh, all require magnesium, which is an important mineral. About 50% of us don't consume adequate magnesium, which is another, it's, I mean, it's just as important as vitamin D. It's, a, it's called a macro mineral, meaning we need to consume a relatively large amount of it every single day, and yet few of us do. And so if you are spending time in the sun, but you're not consuming adequate magnesium, then you could be putting yourself at risk for DNA damage, for skin damage, for accelerated aging. And you're not even going to actually see your vitamin D levels budge. So you want to make sure that you're spending an adequate amount of time in the sun every day, consuming adequate magnesium or even supplementing with magnesium. If you are unable to spend adequate time in the, in the sun, if you live in you know, a northern latitude area, then you want to, I would consider supplementing with, with vitamin D3, which is bioidentical to the form that we create in our skin. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So it's super important. It's one of the things that, uh, you know, I would say it's, it's among the most important things that we need to be sort of cognizant of. So, you know, I'm black and <laughs> I'm married, a white guy. And so, you know, his, I'm around white people a lot. And this is, this is going to sound funny, but I, you know, like our son uh, experiences are different. You know, like for me, I, I don't burn so easily. You know, I do spray on my sunscreen and the whole thing, but I don't burn as easily. And, and we have to be really careful because Scott is, I mean, he's really good at putting on sunscreen or whatever, but he's, he's much whiter than me. Uh, and it's also interesting because our kids, our twins, one of them is dark. He's darker than me and the other one's lighter than me, but he tans to be darker than me. So it's like this, it's like, this is a crazy thing. And then um, Scott's fam parents live right next door to us, so they're older. And so that information really helps that as well. Yeah, I mean, you, you're going to age better because you have nature's sunscreen, like, built in, right? And we're, you know, people with lighter complexion are at higher risk for skin cancer. So, I mean, you put both of us with the same amount of exposure in the sun, and we're going to respond differently. So... There's, you know, there's just different considerations that you have to make. Like, I'm going to be more prone to, like, skin aging, you know, which is not good, but it might be easier for me to create vitamin D in my skin. Right. It might be, you might need more time in the sun, but, you know, like, your skin's going to look more, more youthful uh, as you age because you've got that natural sunscreen. It's a really interesting thing to think about when it comes to, you know, when we go outside. But that brings me to the next question. Like, a lot of people could say, well, if I need vitamin D, but I also need sunscreen, you know, how does that, 
you know, how does that work? Like how much sunscreen should we really use? Uh, we also obviously have to protect our skin from skin cancer and whatnot, but uh, how do people go around choosing what SPF they would use? I mean, the only time that I would use sunscreen is if I know that I'm going to spend an excessive amount of time in the sun, which sometimes that happens, you know, like sometimes you find yourself going on a long hike and you just don't know if there's going to be shade. And so, yeah, I'll bring my sunscreen with me to that. Sometimes I'll put it on my face uh, because you still, there's what's, you know, called photo aging and like, you know, your face, you don't want your face to age any more than it, than it just inevitably will uh, over time. When it comes to choosing sunscreens, which, and I talk about this in my, in my book, The Genius Life, you want to make sure to choose a mineral-based sunscreen, like a zinc oxide, uh, because what they found is that some of these chemical sunscreens, chemical sunscreens work, they don't necessarily create a physical barrier on your skin the way like a zinc oxide would. Um, and what they found is that they actually get into your, into your circulation. They actually get into your blood at a concentration far higher than was originally thought. In fact, the FDA now has mandated the manufacturers of these sunscreens to provide proof that they're safe, which makes, you know, it makes you wonder why this wasn't, why they hadn't asked them for that proof decades ago. So, you know, I'm trying to avoid those chemical sunscreens, uh, oxybenzone, avobenzone. They're potential endocrine disruptors. Uh, and so that's like, you know, we could talk for an hour about endocrine disruption, but um, but generally you want to avoid those and opt instead for like a zinc oxide. Uh, and SPF 30 to 45, I think that's, um, you know, that's, that's a fairly, uh, you know, decent uh, range to, uh, to shoot for. And I'll put that on after I've gotten my requisite time in the sun so that I can create that vitamin D because the sunscreens obviously are going to cut down on your ability to synthesize vitamin D. I love it. Now let's get to it. The Genius Life. First of all, the name of the book is Genius. And Thank you. Secondly, what motivated you to write this book? And when, after we read it, because I know my entire team is going to read it, what can we expect um, in terms of a transformation in our minds? Such a good question. So basically, the reason I wrote The Genius Life, well, my first book is called Genius Foods, and it's a sort of like a nutritional care manual for the brain. But when I, after I wrote that and released that, I realized that nutrition is just one part of the puzzle. Mm. And so The Genius Life takes a 360-degree um, view. And I actually named it after my own podcast. So I have my own podcast. It's called also The Genius Life, and I'd love to have you on it, Sean. Um, I would love to be on it. I'm, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, so we'll have that, you know, we'll have a conversation on there for Cause sure. Because then I can ask you more personal questions on that podcast. <laughs> yeah, super. I'm super down. Okay. Um, so I wrote my new book. I named it after my podcast. So the new book is called The Genius Life. And it's really about that sort of 24-hour, uh, 360-degree approach, all about the little things that you can do every day that are going to add up to big health wins. So like the little tweaks that you can make here and there in there, both in terms of your exposure to the sun, in terms of your exposure to light, um, in terms of the environmental toxins that you may unwittingly be exposing yourself to in your kitchen, in your house. Because as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's not just about eating a blueberry here or there or a piece of wild salmon once a week. It really is like, you've got to sort of be conscious of all of these different things. But the beauty of, of I think my approach is that it's sort of like a one and done approach where you, 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 you get the knowledge and then you just become more conscious mm. you know, of this stuff. It's like, it's like you can't put the genie back in the bottle once it's out, you know? So once you know about all the different things to look out for, the tweaks, you're able to embed the knowledge and then it becomes like autonomic, you know? It becomes like this just like automatic thing that you're now, you're just, it's a heightened level of awareness about things, about, you know, for example, magnesium and vitamin D, you know, who knew? People know, I think you might have heard about the relative importance of vitamin D, right? But if you're not getting adequate magnesium and you're spending time in the sun in hopes of getting, you know, requisite vitamin D, you're actually increasing your risk for DNA damage, which is at the root cause of aging. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, magnesium helps not only repair DNA, um, damaged DNA, but it helps you synthesize vitamin D. So you got to get both of those things. And those are all the little things that I talk about in my new book, all those like little, little connections. But for me, it's really, it's a never ending journey because my mom, she passed away about a year and a half ago and it was the most tragic thing that I, that I ever experienced. And trying to understand why my mom was robbed from me at such a young age uh, really has become my life's mission and to help sort of um, evangelize what it is that I'm learning to help others perhaps, you know, 
if there's a chance that there's somebody out there who is going to take some insight that they get from me or my books or my podcasts or whatever, and it somehow reduces the risk of them having to go through what I went through, then to me, it'll all have been worth it. I, I will say um, condolences to the loss of your mother. And I think that, you know, someone, I was listening to a podcast once and someone was really suffering from, you know, the loss of a loved one. I think it was their brother. And, you know, I think a lot of times, whether it's a year and a half or five years or 10 years that have gone by, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, like, okay, it motivated them. But like, you know, they can look at you as a strong person and be like, oh, well, he's good now. And I just want to say, just because I feel this, you know, I know that every day is not a great day, even though, you know, her passing really inspired and motivated you to inspire and motivate other people. So, you know. I just want to extend that if for any reason you're not feeling having a great day, man, you could reach out to me because, you know, you're I see you putting so much energy and effort out into the world to pay it forward, to help people stay as positive and as healthy as possible. And not only am I going to read your book, but, you know, hopefully I can be a pillar of support for you. And you could use that anytime. It could be a year from now, two years from now when we record our podcast, hopefully next month on your podcast. But I just wanted to say that because uh, I ask a lot of people, like, what does it mean to trust and believe in who you are? and Where do they get their power from? Yeah, it makes it makes me feel like, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I get to do what I do for a living. And it makes me feel that what I went through, what she went through was not uh, in vain. You know, mm-hmm. if it's it, because it's it's been able to create something that that ultimately, you know, has helped other people and continues to help other people. And, um, and I know that I'm not alone, but you know, not everybody I don't think has the courage to, to, to stand up and to reach out and to start spreading this information in the way that my mom, you know, has equipped me to be able to do, you know, it's really, it's a testament to who she was at the end of the day. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, you know, if my work reaches one person, as I, as I said, I'm, I'm grateful, but thank you so much for uh for what you've extended to me and to your community it really means a lot so my last and final question for you what does it mean to trust and believe in who you are oh man well i think what it means it's you know it's really just being able to be guided by your own internal compass you know and to be able to listen to the noise and the static which today seems to suffuse everything to not let it guide you um, to really be driven uh, internally and to do that work to figure out what it is that drives you and then to go boldly in that direction, to really not listen to the gatekeepers and the haters and the naysayers and to just, you know, to just go, to roll up your sleeves, to do the work and to just go. You know, maybe maybe it's naivete, maybe it's stupidity, but I just felt that my voice, you know, that I had something to say and that it mattered. and. Tune out the noise as best as you can. Don't throw out the good ideas that you come across. Like, entertain those. But realize that um, most people are just going to throw hate and shade at you just because they're not courageous. They're not as courageous as you are. Trust in yourself, trust in your abilities, trust in your talents, and take that first step. You are the man. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate you coming on the show. I know that our listeners are going to love you. And last but not least, where can we find you and where can we get your book? Oh man. So you can find me at, uh, I'm most active on Instagram at Max Lugavere. It's L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E. I also have my own podcast. It's called The Genius Life. Come over and say hi. It's uh, available wherever you get your podcast. Hit that subscribe button. And then my book can be found at GeniusLifeBook.com. GeniusLifeBook.com. 